the Jewish views on the long-awaited report into allegations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. Shami Chakrabarty tells us about her findings. Breaking the fast for Ramadan, we hear what happened at a multi-faith iftar from two of its Jewish attendees and Jewish London walking tours on how we can discover our past on foot. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Luciana Berger, the MP for Liverpool Wavertree, has resigned from the shadow cabinet in which she was Labour's mental health spokesperson. She expressed no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn and in her resignation letter told him that while he'd shown her kindness and courtesy, she believed the party needed a united Labour leadership in such turbulent times. It comes as Labour MPs overwhelmingly backed a vote of no confidence in Jeremy Corbyn as leader. Allies of Mr Corbyn, who has strong support among the party's members, have called on his critics to trigger a formal leadership contest. Naked images of three- and four-year-old girls were discovered on the iPhone of the co-owner of a now-closed children's summer camp, St Albans Crown Court has heard. When Ben Lewis, who's 26, was investigated by the police, they found children's underwear next to one of his laptops. Lewis, who had spent the equivalent of 14 months in custody on remand and a tagged curfew, admitted three counts of downloading indecent images and one of taking indecent images. He received a 24-month jail sentence suspended for two years. Jewish charities have voiced their concerns over the implications of the UK's leaving the EU and how it will impact on their work. Jewish Care, Norwood and World Jewish Relief thought in particular that staff recruitment and the delivering of services, together with the continuing of donations, were a source of concern. Simon Morris, Chief Executive of Jewish Care, commented that it was an uncertain time for them. A Jewish sociology lecturer who was carrying a bag with the word schlep printed on it faced anti-Semitic abuse on a packed commuter train in central London. Natalie Patimson, who works at the University of Brighton, said no one in the carriage reacted as a young man and woman used unacceptable language as they told her to go back to Israel. Miss Patimson said she was shaken and very upset by the incident. And finally, it would usually be a Jewish mother who'd do this sort of thing. But in America, Baron Brooks, an unmarried 48-year-old, discovered that his father had taken out a full-page ad asking for a willing wife for his son. Mr Brooks, who lives in Salt Lake City, described his 78-year-old dad, Arthur, as nuts and told a local paper the whole thing was embarrassing. Arthur stated any applicants couldn't be more than five foot eight for his somewhat shorter son and must not have voted for Barack Obama. Makes no difference now, surely. Here's Andrew with the sport. Thanks, Viv. The three Jewish singles players at this year's Wimbledon Championships have all suffered first-round defeats. Israeli Dudi Seller, Italian Camilla Giorgi and Argentine Diego Schwartzman all bowed out of the tournament on the first day. There is, however, still Jewish and Israeli interest at SW19 with the start of the doubles competition. With the Olympics fast approaching, Israeli gymnast Alex Shatilov has won gold at the World Challenge Cup in Portugal. The final warm-up tournament before the Rio Games, the 29-year-old will be taking part in his third consecutive Games. And finally, Aaron Zahavi has completed his move to Chinese Super League club Wanzhou RNF. Maccabi Tel Aviv will receive £5.9 million, the largest transfer fee ever paid to an Israeli team, while the 28-year-old will earn an estimated £9.2 million over the next two and a half years, 
as well as earning a £14,000 bonus for each goal he scores. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sports at www.jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your edition of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me is news editor Justin Cohen and supplements editor Bridget Grant. Welcome to you both. Now, ordinarily at this stage, I would be saying, Justin, let's start off with the front page, but it's been quite a big week news-wise for the Jewish community. So we're actually going to start with a story that is not in the paper this week because it, when you went to print on Wednesday evening, this hadn't happened. I am, of course, talking about Shami Chakrabarti's report into anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. And of course, that occurred on Thursday morning. So do you want to tell us what has been found? Yeah, I mean, this is a story which has been running and running. Obviously, uh, it all kicked off. The uh, inquiry was launched when Ken Livingstone made his comments and was suspended and, and Nashar as well. The result was an inquiry commissioned by Jeremy Corbyn and Shami Chakrabarti, former head of Liberty, has now reported. I have to say there's been a mixed reaction, I would say, to this. There have been some statements from within the community and from Israel activists who feel that this report is quite vague. I was at the press conference, I have to say, the initial reaction that I gauged from the community and from Labour politicians was generally positive. I think the focus now is on how this is all implemented. Some of the highlights of her recommendations included saying that Zio should be outlawed when the party must be totally unacceptable. There can't be any comparisons made between Hitler, Nazis and the current situation between Israel and the Palestinians. And again, Jeremy Corbyn fully endorsed those recommendations at the press conference. Uh, it's now going to be a question of how this is all endorsed. I had an opportunity to speak to John Mann, the head of the all-party parliamentary group against anti-Semitism, a man who's not afraid of condemning anti-Semitism in the party, the man who, of course, famously confronted Ken Livingstone outside the steps of the BBC, a man who's not afraid of condemning Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. But he was quite clear in a way that actually surprised me, the strength of his feeling about how significant this is, how important it is, the fact that this has taken on most of the recommendations that he put forward in his submissions to the inquiry. And as I say, it's now all about the implementation. It certainly is. Well, we're going to hear from Shami herself because both you and I got the chance to speak to her after that very conference. So we'll hear what happened a little later on in the programme. Let's carry on looking, though, at the actual paper for this week. And on our front cover, we've got the, well, I suppose it sort of all stems about the fallout of Brexit, really. What, what's on the front cover? Yeah, I, I think quite a clever front page. Eva. It didn't come from me, I have to say, so I, I can say that. We've brought together the three big stories of the week, of course, that emanated from that big Brexit vote last Thursday and the fallout that's come politically. David Cameron, of course, immediately announcing his resignation and Jeremy Corbyn still, as we uh, as, as we speak today, hanging on. By the time you hear this, this that might have changed. But at, yeah, the moment, at the time of recording, we should say he is still the leader as far as we know. <laughs> he is still the leader and showing no signs, it has to be said, in, in going. He, he was, again, talking at the press conference, the Shami Chakrabarti press conference, about how torrid a week it's been for him personally. No surprise prizes there, but but he he remains in office. Luciana Berger, the most senior Jewish figure within the Labour Party, was among more than 60, I think, at the latest count, 
senior figures, both MPs and private parliamentary secretaries, who deserted Corbyn this week as part of a, a, a coup, an attempted coup at least. It looks now like uh, Angela Eagle will be the most likely person to challenge him formally for the leadership, as I said, if he if he But that's assuming he on. wants to stand down. And also what I thought was quite interesting, because I don't think we should brush under the carpet what's happened with Luciana Berger, because as you quite rightly identify, she was the most senior Jewish figure within Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Also, I believe I'm right in thinking she actually held a position for the first time that no one's held before, shadow minister for mental health. Is that right? Correct. So that's obviously quite a big step for her to walk away from that, not just on the front of doing what her fellow shadow MPs were doing, but actually to abandon a post that's so new that it's still being developed and understood. So really quite a big story. Yeah, I mean, we're not we're not hearing many positive things about Jeremy Corbyn at the moment, but it has to be said that this was quite a historic post to create, something that the, the government mm-hmm. uh, didn't have in place. It was a shadow, a shadow cabinet level post specifically looking at mental health, something that Luciana was passionate about, that did some great work in in increasing the awareness of that issue. And, you know, hopefully that will continue, you know, in, in, in future administrations. Indeed. OK, well, from one leader to the other, let's talk about Prime Minister David Cameron. You mentioned, obviously, that he has declared he is about to walk away from the top job. And, well, it just looks like the future of British politics is in absolute disarray at the moment, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary time. I mean, you feel like you're living through history right now. And with minute-by-minute news the way that it is, we don't miss a thing. I mean, somebody sneezes in Westminster and we know about it. And literally, I mean, I I was speaking to Vanessa, felt on her programme about Boris as a contender for the leadership. And by the time I got to work, he had resigned from... Uh, yeah, you know, he declared himself out. He wasn't going it's, to take part. It's been an extraordinary time. And because a lot of the parliamentary figures have wives or who have platforms on national newspapers, we're living through that as well. So we're getting the behind the scenes for Michael Gove from his wife, Sarah Vine. It, it, it is really, really difficult. But I am particularly upset about David Cameron. I think he's been a, a wonderful friend. Justin has written in the paper this week about what a great friend he has been to the Jewish community. And we just can never take that too lightly. We never know what we're dealing with. And you mentioned the ministers that have kind of walked away from their posts. There are lots of Jewish charities, Jamie, for example, who will have aligned themselves to some of these ministers with the hope of them helping the charity, pushing it forward. And all this kind of, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater makes it very difficult for them because they do build relationships with these ministers and suddenly they don't know what they're doing. So it's, it's fascinating if you are a political reporter, but I think very unsettling if you live in this country. Yeah, I think that David Cameron will clearly go down alongside Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair as among Israel and the Jewish community's greatest friends. You can you can list so many areas where he really was a trailblazer. In particular, I would say, his support for Israel and standing by Israel during the Gaza conflict made him stand out as possibly the greatest friend of Israel in the world. And then the Holocaust Commission, which he, which he set up, there, there was always a feeling among those that know him best, that those that speak to him, that this was a personal passion of his, that that he, he had a real feeling for the survivor and admirations for the survivors, that he wanted to make sure 
their stories live on for future generations. And through his Holocaust Commission and the resultant uh, memorial and state-of-the-art learning centre that's going to be built in the heart of Westminster, his legacy will continue. I should also say, though, that we're now looking at a leadership contest that you'd have to imagine that Theresa May is now well out in front, particularly without Boris there. But probably Michael Gove as well as as the second favourite and Stephen Crabbe even. All three of those are massive supporters of the community. Uh, some of the greatest supporters of the community and of Israel in particular that, that have been in government for a long time. So we're, we're sport for choice from that point of view, at least. We are. And well, hopefully the fallout of getting back to the Labour story, the fallout of the report from Shami Chakrabarty as well, will hopefully start to unearth and uncover some key members of the Labour Party as well who demonstrate some sort of pro-allegiance or at least understanding towards the community and Israel as a whole. There are other stories that we can look at, one in particular we've got time for and this, I don't really often look at the news, I think working in news it's amazing how one can be so immune to emotion when you hear a story but there was one in particular that really made me feel a bit angry and a bit sick this week is that there was a senior lecturer from Brighton University if I'm not mistaken who was carrying a bag with the word schlep on it with the Hebrew writing next to it and it's suspected that she was attacked because of carrying that bag what happened Bridget? Yeah that's exactly what happened she was carrying one of those like you know bags that I particularly myself love to carry with words or messages on the side and it it, it does say schlep on it with a definition and the Hebrew translation next to it and then she was on the train had a, a, a guy and his girlfriend looking at her oddly and then they proceeded to tell her in no uncertain terms to go back to Israel with all the other can I say other Jews other yes, Jews we'll say because yes. we won't use the exact word no we won't although it gets used a lot of spurs but anyway the point being that if that is kind of what is being unleashed at the moment in this country as I mentioned, the unsettling times, I think that this they seem to think that they've got free reign to say whatever they want to anybody. And the what I cannot imagine how horrific that would have been, sitting on the train innocently with a bag that you absolutely love, as I would. In fact, I would definitely carry that bag. And to be attacked for using it in London, you know, your hometown. You wonder what's happening, really. It does make you wonder, and I'm sure that we will learn ourselves in the coming weeks, months, maybe even years to come. Thank you both. That's all we've got time for for this week's look at the paper. Don't forget that you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can read the e-paper online at jewishnews.co.uk. Well, as you've been hearing, after months of speculation and anticipation, well, two months to be precise, this week the long-awaited report into anti-Semitism within the Labour Party was finally published at a conference in central London. In front of an audience of many key members of the Jewish community, the author of the report, Shami Chakrabarty, discussed her findings after numerous damning allegations to key figures of the Labour Party. Well, both Justin and I got the chance to speak to Shami after her presentation, and we started by asking her how confident is she that the recommendations that she's put forward will be implemented in full. I certainly hope that the recommendations will be implemented in full. I take heart from the ringing endorsement and support that we heard from the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn. That's obviously incredibly important. But also from the the publication of the report in full. There's no, there's no editing or summarising. It's all out there. So I think that will make it hard for anyone to uh, attempt to... Um, 
undermine the implementation of the report. So uh, at this moment, I, I'm, I'm optimistic, yes. John McDonald in the last couple of months has suggested that there should be lifetime bans and other community figures have, have suggested that there should be a rule change that would make bans easier. You've specifically said there shouldn't be this time. I'm not going to ask you about any specific cases, but if someone is suspended and they're deemed not to be you know, remorseful in any way, what's the next step? Well, what I've recommended is that we have a range of sanctions going right up to the most serious sanctions, which are either two years suspension or expulsion. Now, expulsion is expulsion. I don't think that the NEC of the Labour Party should be robbed of the discretion to to receive applications for people years into the future. But I have said that the current presumption against letting someone come back within five years is probably a good one. But I, it, it's just not in my human rights or legal thinking to to believe in lifetime bans and lifetime expulsions. I think people should have the opportunity to learn to repent, to to benefit from broader experience and, and, and education. But ultimately, we, we recommend a, a process that's in place. But there should be room for expulsions in, in, oh, in the worst cases. absolutely. I've made it clear in my report that there must be the power to expel in the most serious cases of breach, including repeated and unrepentant breach. But it is for the NEC to decide over time whether anyone who's uh, expelled might have might have changed their views and their behaviours and be considered for for, for re-entry. But as I say, the presumption is probably against doing that within five years. There will be some, though, who would have, when they found out that you became a member of Mm. the Labour Party, would probably wonder how it was you were able to conduct a truly unbiased report Mm. into your findings. Mm. Can you maybe explain your process and how you separated the two? Sure. So my thinking was as follows. I've been a Labour supporter for some time. We all have our conscience and and I believe in voting. We women haven't even had the vote for a hundred years yet, so I believe it an ethical duty to vote. So I've always voted and I've been a Labour supporter for for some time. I never joined the party. I was a civil, first a civil servant and then the, you know, the, the independent director of Liberty had to be completely politically, party politically neutral. I had finished work at Liberty about a month before I was asked to do this. I was considering joining anyway and then I was asked on the 29th of April at short order you know would you you know would I chair this inquiry I I said yes and then I reflected on how it would look to Labour members if I had to recommend strong medicine why should anybody listen to me making any remote criticisms of people or processes in the Labour Party if I was not considered to be one of them, if I was considered to be, I don't know, a closet conservative or UKIPer or Lib Dem or anything else? Why should people take a strong medicine from, from someone not in the family? And as I felt part of the family, I thought the honest thing to do was to join. Now, I knew that I would take some criticism initially, and I, and I did. And you've all read that. But I hope that now that I've made my recommendations, they can be judged on their own merits. Uh, And people that are perhaps not completely comfortable with everything that I've said about speech or conduct will at least know that it's well motivated. It is not just right in principle. It's also, in my view, best for the Labour Party to, to live and lead by example. 
Although you've spent a lifetime tackling these issues, human rights and, and racism and so on, were you surprised in any way by the level of anti-Semitism that you discovered and that you uncovered through this inquiry? Do you know what? I've been very careful not to attempt to, to quantify these things because as a human rights person, my thinking is if a single person feels unhappy, excluded, alienated from their natural political home. That's one person too many. And that was the approach that I adopted from the, the outset. And it's on that basis that I've made the recommendation. It's not good enough, you know, if it's only uh, to say, oh, well, it's only a, a you know, a, a small problem. It, what we need is to aspire to do better. I'm not making criminal laws here. We already have criminal laws. I'm not making discrimination laws. We already have those. This club can have higher standards and better rules because it is the democratic socialist party of this country and so any racism or anti-semitism or, or frankly just uncomradely behavior is just too much and I think you heard Jeremy Corbyn make it absolutely clear that it's not going to be tolerated under his leadership on his watch or in his name. What's the sort of time frame we're looking at in terms of changes being implemented? Well, again, you heard from the leader that the, that the procedural rule changes can be theoretically placed before the party conference in the autumn. But as for the recommendations on guidance and conduct and culture, I don't see why those shouldn't be embraced and welcomed and practised by people as we speak. That would be my hope. They've been ringingly endorsed by the leader. He, he's led by example today, I believe. He's made it absolutely clear what he thinks of epithets, including, you know, modern epithets that have grown up, you know, words like Zio. He's made it absolutely clear that he finds them absolutely intolerable. He has led by example, and I hope that everyone will follow. You will have discovered through your extensive contacts with the Jewish community that there does remain a concern about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership and his past associations and and what he is and will, isn't willing to say on Hamas so far. Do you think he could go further and that that would send a strong message to those that, that follow him, that support him? And obviously there were many here today. I think he was pretty clear today in both his speech and in the follow-up question that he... He wants to have dialogue and debate and discussion with people, but that doesn't mean that he subscribes to, the, to, to their views. And of course, I have consulted widely in the party, the parliamentary party, and I, 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 I even interviewed the leader in preparation of this report. And I personally put the sorts of questions to him that you heard the, uh, the journalist put to him. And, and, and I, I believe his answers to be are both candid and sincere. Do you have any concerns that with all of the work that you've put into your reports and your findings, yeah. to all the work you've put into your reports and your findings, do you believe that there is a chance that this debacle that is going on within the Labour Party at the moment, questioning Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, is that at risk of undermining any of the work that you've done and implementing any change? I think that Jeremy just put his weight and his commitment behind this report today. And I ask everyone in the party, whatever they want for the future, whatever their traditions or factions within the party, to at least unite around these values. And hopefully the ambition of a more civil discourse can, can raise the tone, not just around debates around Israel and Palestine or 
you know, or Europe or the other debates that got very, very uncivil and heated. I hope that in the debates that lie ahead around the leadership and people can behave a little more kindly and civilly as well. Shami Chakrabarti, author of the report that looked into allegations of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, talking to both Justin Cohen and me there about her findings. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Adam will be joined by community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and journalist and author Jeremy Havadi. They will be discussing wandering Jewish communities. Plus, Diana Toman will be speaking to Dan Rickman and Charlie Agran about a multi-faith iftar, the feast that Muslims break a Ramadan fast on. Now, Jewish communities are known for always having wandered from place to place since the beginning of time. Certainly that's the case in London. Of course, the area we were most synonymous with was the East End. Ensuring that our past is never forgotten is people like Stephen Burstein. He runs Jewish London walking tours and entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been speaking to him to find out more about his organisation. She started by asking him how exactly he got into being a tour guide. Well, I was actually a a newspaper journalist up until about 30 years ago. And then I joined my father and brother in their tour operating business and set up holidays and tours for them in Paris, Amsterdam and Rome. And then my uh, brother disposed of the business about 12 years ago. And I went to Rome, my favourite city, conducted tours of the Jewish ghetto, the Colosseum, etc., But I always knew I'd come back to my roots, which was the east end of London where I was born, and start Jewish tours. And what did you, did you have to read a lot of history? Did you have to learn? Are there any exams or? Not exams as such, but certainly read a lot of history. Uh, My research took several years before I actually started the tours. I have a a library at home on the subject, memories from my uh, father and mother because uh, my mother was born in the East End. My father came over from uh, Warsaw just before the the war. And I spoke to uh, many residents in uh, homes up and down uh, the country who originated from the East End of London and sought their reflections, fascinating reflections. Altogether, it built up uh, a number of tours for me. And where do you you go to the East End? Do you meet people in the East End? And then how do how do these tours work? Well, I uh, fortunately have a, a wonderful presence on uh, TripAdvisor, and people uh, who pop into Google the words Jewish tours of London will find me. Fortunately, again at the very top, and I get uh, recommendations from one client after another. And then people, of course, approach me. But I also conduct uh, tours for synagogues here in London about a dozen tours a year for JW3 here in northwest London. And I also conduct tours for schools, non-Jewish as well as Jewish. Right. So if somebody wanted a, I don't know, a personal tour or, or a group tour, they contact you and they get it together. And do you normally give them an agenda? Do they say where they would like to go or do you decide how that's going to work? No, they decide. I have a repertoire of uh, 10 different tours and uh, I have a, a very attractive website And people normally uh, look at the website, choose the tour they wish and uh, approach me. The most popular tour, of course, is the old Jewish quarter in East London. And not only do I provide uh, my clients, hopefully, with a successful and enjoyable tour, but I gain a lot of satisfaction myself, especially when it comes to, say, clients from America, Canada, seeking to retrace their roots. 
And what sort of parts of the East End do you take them to? What's the, the most popular thing people want to see? Yes, the most popular area are the two districts of Spitterfields and Orgate, which uh, really uh, has a fascinating Jewish history, whether it be the remains of the old soup kitchen for the Jewish poor or Bevismark Synagogue in which we visit, Bevismark's being the oldest synagogue in Britain, and they're the former Jews' free school, which was built in 1822. It's all there. All makes for fascinating viewing and, I must say, uh, fascinating stories by myself. Do you take people round sort of slightly, if you like, sadder areas, cemeteries, and, and do people sort of want to look up families and find yeah. out about the past in that way? Yes, another popular tour actually is Wilsden Jewish Cemetery. I conduct tours there not only for JW3 but uh, for uh, social organisations, clubs, because uh, it sounds a little morbid maybe, but uh, it's the first tour that uh, sells out at JW3. Fascinating uh, individuals who uh, have their last resting place at Wilson Jewish Cemetery, whether it be heads of industry, chief rabbis, even a certain gentleman who is buried there who invented that saw the lady in half magical act back in the early 20th century. What do you do the act there and then just to prove? Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, I normally end up by saying that his assistant is buried over there and over there too. <laughs> It is actually wonderful. In fact, the, the Wilson Cemetery, I think, is, is getting some heritage money. Indeed it is. I'm delighted uh, to uh, hear that. Yes, it's uh, well warranted. It's uh, a wonderful cemetery, one of the uh, oldest uh, Jewish cemeteries, opened in 1845, and uh, it really, really has some very, very interesting individuals buried there. I think I went on a tour once of the uh, walking tour around Jack the Ripper sort of sort of things. It was all a little bit, it felt a bit fake. Presumably that's more entertainment than history. That is. Uh, it's uh, coincidental you should mention that, but my most popular tour in Spitterfields and Allgate does touch on the Jewish connection of Jack the Ripper. OK, I didn't know there was a Jewish connection. Oh, indeed. I'm not going to reveal it, just <laughs> no. in case I spoil it for potential clients, of course. And do, do kids come? Do you take kids or is it sort of adults? Is it quite, do you usually walk quite a lot? Yes. Well, I know uh, it's a walking tour. It is a walking tour. There is uh, quite a, a, an amount of walking, but uh, for private tours with children, I'm able to be flexible as far as the length of tour is concerned. When it comes to schools, both Jewish and non-Jewish schools, I'm able to tailor-make a tour according to the amount of time the uh, teachers wish. Uh, I'm pleased to say that uh, non-Jewish schools uh, have on their curriculum the need to learn about other religions. And uh, when it comes to the Jewish religion, a walking tour of the old Jewish East End seems to be extremely popular and informative for them. Are there any areas that, as Jews, you're taking Jews, that you don't go to? Are there any areas that are, that are maybe not nice for Jews to go to? or Not at not all. I, I must say, uh, once again, my old Jewish quarter tour features uh, a walk down Brick Lane, which at one time was uh, featuring one kosher butcher after another, up until maybe 70 years ago. Today, it's one curry restaurant after another, because it's now Bangladeshi, Muslim. And I've taken uh, groups of Hasidic Jews down Brick Lane with no uh, feeling of friction or tension whatsoever. So there's no need to feel fearful for people who are worrying just how the East End has changed. Not at all. It's still a, a very fascinating quarter. And uh, my tours do touch on other cultures as well who have uh, inhabited the East End of London. I've got to ask you this, because we are in London. What do you do when it's raining? 
I'm fortunate to say that despite the English weather, I've had very, very few uh, cancellations when it comes to bad weather. There's still a great interest which, uh, and enthusiasm. So, of course, umbrellas can be a little bit of, uh, uh, should we say, an obstruction when I'm pointing out uh, various sites of interest, but uh, we overcome it. Have you got any funny stories? Anything that's happened to you that you think, I cannot believe they've just asked me that or that we've done that? Well, there was the occasion when I was standing before the uh, facade of the old soup kitchen for the Jewish poor. Uh, and uh, the left of the sign on the same level was the sign way out. And on the right of the sign of soup kitchen for the Jewish poor was the inscription way in because people used to go in and have the food dished out for them. And one of my clients actually looked up and before I managed to explain the purpose of the way in and way out, she asked, why did they call it the way out soup kitchen? (laughs) Very good. Oh, dear. Very nice. But you get people (laughs) from all over the world then. Indeed. I have many uh, private clients coming over from uh, America, taking up my tours, uh, Canada, Australia. There seems to be an interest throughout the, the diaspora seeking uh, to find out about uh, the Jewish history of uh, the famous East End of London. And uh, it's very rewarding for me, especially when I do take clients to places of personal interest to them. On various occasions, I'm able to say to uh, certain visitors, well, this was where your great-grandmother got married. Wow, that must be very special. It is indeed, both for the clients and for myself. Yes. And it's interesting that you think now in this age of fast moving and Ubers and being taken from place to place, actually, to be tramping the streets, walking around does give you a much more of a sense of a closeness. You notice the little details on the buildings and the the small things in the pavements that you maybe would have just zoomed past in the car. Absolutely. I've taken on tour um, some Jewish residents in the area of Spitterfields, Orgate, and along the way when I've pointed out one or two interesting items, the response has come back, well, I've lived here for four years and I never noticed that. Gosh. So if people want more information, want to find out, want to go on their own tours, how do they get hold of you? Well, just go on to uh, the internet and I'm there at uh, Jewish London Walking Tours .co.uk or just pop Jewish tours in London on Google. And as the saying goes, I'm available for weddings and bar mitzvahs. Stephen Burstein talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about Jewish London walking tours. And for more information, you can always go to Jewish London walking tours, all one word, .co.uk. Jewish London walking tours. .co.uk. Sounds absolutely fascinating. I really would love to learn more about the history of the East End. Something for the checklist. If you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can always contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, Breaking the fast is something that the community knows all too well about. However, we have it quite easy by comparison to some of our Muslim counterparts. Ramadan is a particularly holy festival in Islam, and part of the festival is that Muslims fast from sunrise to sunset for a whole month. Suddenly 25 hours doesn't look so bad, does it? The breaking of the fast each evening occurs with an iftar, or a meal that breaks the fast, 
Well, a multi-faith iftar took place this week at Lambeth Palace with key people such as Chief Rabbi Ephraim Mervis, Archbishop of Canterbury Justin Welby and London Mayor Sadiq Khan. And in fact, if you do a search online, you'll be able to see that they've all taken a fantastic selfie of all of the attendees of the iftar. So I highly recommend it because it's a really, really nice photo that depicts London in the 21st century. Anyway, I digress. Community reporter Diana Toman has been speaking to two of the Jewish attendees, Dan Rickman and Charlie Agran from Mitzvah Day. She started by asking them how they got their invitations. As employees of Mitzvah Day, we are obviously involved in a lot of interfaith work and myself and Charlie and the rest of the team, we engage with a lot of people that are 18 to 30, which was this event specifically focused on, and we were invited. And I think it's probably fair to say that we are one of the leading organisations that is involved in interfaith work in the Jewish world. What was the food like? The food was delicious and um, we had our own table for kosher food, which was incredibly lovely to have and the chief rabbi was there eating with us. But it was lovely because obviously, you know, what's interesting is it's not just the Jews that like to eat, people from any faiths like to eat. And we obviously had our special table with our kosher food and there were, I think we were slightly outnumbered, there were definitely more not non-Jews and Jews. So after a while, we just invited people to come join us at our table and eat our chicken as opposed to it going to waste. Now, we know, I mean, just to recap, we know that Chief Rabbi Mervis and the Archbishop, Justin Welby, and London Mayor Sadiq Khan were all there. Sounds a little bit like the beginning of a Jewish joke, doesn't it? But who else was invited? There were 100 young people aged 18 to 30 from different faith backgrounds who also all came along to discuss interfaith. Did you have a chance to talk to many of them? Yes, we did. We were put into different clusters, which gave you the opportunity to meet people and mingle and talk about what you do. That must have been interesting. I mean, let's just talk about the Muslim faith for for a moment. Did you manage to glean anything that you didn't already know about the Muslim faith by talking to other people like that? I personally didn't uh, glean anything specifically about the Muslim faith, but I think there was such a um, mix of different faiths that you didn't necessarily spend that long speaking to an individual from a specific faith as right. lots of people. Conversely, they may have learnt something about the Jewish faith from yes. you. Yes, right. yeah, well. definitely. Well, certainly about the kosher food. The fact that we had our own table, people were very interested as to what maybe, yeah, what kosher food was and specifically because it would made it unkosher if the non-Jewish staff were to open the food and that was quite an interesting talking point. Has this event happened before? I think it was the first time it's ever happened. Mm. Well, it certainly would have been the first time with the current chief and the current mayor. But I think this is the first time... And the current archbishop, presumably. Exactly. And I think that's the first time that this event has ever happened in this guise, especially with a focus on young people. And what was so great about it was that it wasn't just, you know, they didn't just pick random young people off the streets. These are all young people that have, have, have had an interest and have been involved in interfaith activity. Do you feel that this is this type of event plays any part in creating peace amongst communities or is that is that being yeah, a little think, too ambitious yeah exactly I, I think you know you've got to start slowly and you've got to start piece by piece for myself who having lived in you know northwest london for the last nine years and lived in this jewish bubble you forget that there's a wider world out there and what i found was really interesting from the evening was that it was the similarities rather than the differences that I engaged in. So, for example, that particular night was the same night as the England-Iceland game. 
and frequently throughout the evening there were sort of the moans and groans as we realised it was one all and then we were losing 2-1 and clearly we weren't going to win that game. And I'm turning to the guy next to me who's in his full-on Indian priest garb and he's equally as distressed as I am. And then we were able to have a whole discussion and realise actually we're both Manchester United fans and how do we feel about this season? And as I say, it's those similarities that bring us together because if you go from the top of, oh, well, you know, interfaith and we're going to do peace, but it's not. It's realising what we have that's the same that helps us to relate to each other and that will build to, you know, peace is a big thing and we're never going to achieve that an interfaith iftar but it's the little steps so we're looking at things at, at a sort of micro level absolutely right starting from the bottom up as it were are you planning to do or go to any other interfaith events last year we had um, for mitzvah day we had 74 interfaith projects happening coming this november on the 27th we hope to have even more than that interfaith events take all place. over the UK all over the UK and well internationally as well we hope to have at least 80 in the UK Dan Rickman and Charlie Agran from Mitzvah Day talking to Diana Toman there about attending a multi-faith iftar that took place earlier this week you're listening to the Jewish Views this is the Jewish Schmooze the part of the show where studio guests join me Clive Roslin to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far and joining Adam Bradley and me today are journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn, two of my favourite people. The subject for this edition has been inspired by what Kate was talking to Stephen Burstein about a little earlier on, the ever-changing locations of the Jewish community. The question is, are we just a people who can't keep still or is there a reason that we keep moving on from different areas that we call our home? Well, let's start with you, Liz. You were born in India, weren't you? No, no, I wasn't, but my parents were. But you... But So So well, you weren't I, born there? No, 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 no. I, um, I came on the boat, but I, had, I wasn't born, <laughs> if you oh. see what I mean. Because <laughs> I was going to say, how long, you lived there, though, did you? No, no. You weren't even my par- that. No, my parents lived there till they got married, and my dad qualified as a doctor, and uh, my mother was pregnant with me, and they they came on the boat to England. It was the time with the NHS were, were looking for doctors, and they actually wanted to go to America, but they got a visa very quickly to come to England, so they came here. But I mean, my family have moved. I've got family in America, and you know, all over the place. Yeah, well, you've just mm. proved what I was saying, actually, because yeah. it comes to that exactly like that. Jeremy, what about you? Well, uh, my on my mother's side, um, my great grandparents came from the Russian Empire, so what's today Poland and Ukraine. On my father's side, um, the family came from originally from Aden um, and settled in what was then Palestine. Uh, so, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm descended from immigrants, therefore, on both sides of my family. But since you've been an Englishman, how many times have you moved in your adulthood? I've only, in terms of where I've lived, I've only really moved to different places in England itself. I've been abroad, but not actually lived abroad. When you were in London, did you move from one Jewish area to another Jewish area? I wouldn't say one Jewish area to another area. Some of the areas that I've lived have certainly had quite sizable Jewish populations and in fact the area that I'm living in now certainly does so but I wouldn't say necessarily that they would be described as Jewish areas in the way for example that one might describe Stanford Hill as a Jewish area or Golders Green as a Jewish area I would distinguish between those areas and ones where there just happen to be a very large number of Jews who are are moving there. But the extraordinary thing is for years Jews complained about ghettos 
And most of the Jews who came here from Russia, Germany, wherever they came from in the late 19th century, early 20th century, all went to live in the East End. They then moved from the East End and they created a new ghetto in Golders Green, for example, and in Finchley and in Edgware. And these keep going. And now they're going out further into Herefordshire and places like that. Is that not true, Adam? I would have to agree with that. I am a typical wandering Jew, and I, I agree entirely with what you're saying, Clive. My family came from Latvia, Lithuania, Spain, Portugal, came to England, moved to the East End. When I was born, my parents had moved to Essex, which is as the Jews move out of the East End towards Essex. We moved when I was young to Bournemouth. Again, Jews moving away. And like so many people of my generation, as you grow up in Bournemouth, you realise there's not a big enough Jewish community and you go and ghettoise yourself. And so many of us have moved to North London. But it's so peculiar, isn't it? Because to ghettoise yourself when the thing that all Jews have argued about for centuries, generations, are we've been left in our own little ghettos. And now when, when I come to Golders Green, I really believe I am in the biggest ghetto in London. But it's building a community, though, isn't it? Because the Jews move to a certain area and then you get more kosher shops and it just sort of seems to build on that. And then people are comfortable in these areas. Yeah, but it's wrong, isn't it? Everybody should mix with everybody, I believe. Yeah, but they do. They're not solely Jewish areas. Well, Golders Green, I think it's 80% of Golders Green is Jewish. I grew up in Golders Green. I think the religion actually dictates that we have to ghettoise ourselves. I mean, certainly for the more religious Jews, it says that a Jew can only eat from an oven that's been lit by a Jew, wine poured by a Jew. The kosher dietary laws are so, so strict with the, the more religious Jews that they have to be in an area where there are kosher shops, where there are Jewish schools. So it dictates that we have to ghettoise. And that's what they've done with Stamford Hill with all the Haredi, haven't they? Yeah, absolutely. Jeremy, do you agree with that? No, I would take issue a little bit. I mean, you could certainly talk about ghettos when Jews are concentrated in the shtetls, in the Lower East Side and in the East End. And obviously today, you know, you've got big concentrations of the Jewish community in places like Stamford Hill and Golders Green. But when you're looking at where Jews are living for the most part, they're obviously living among a large number of their fellow Jews in wherever it is, in places in Manchester, in places in North London. But... These are areas that don't have, shall we say, a Jewish flavour necessarily. There will be some well, some Jewish shops, there will be a synagogue. You know, there will be, if you like, in, in the landscape, elements that are to do with Judaism. But there are plenty of other people that Jews are mixing with. Jews are contributing so much to secular life and to, and to the life of the communities. And therefore, I just don't think that fits the typical description well, of, it, of a ghetto. It begs the question then, where does a community end and a ghetto start? It's not like the Jews that live, they're not being confined to a space. They're living in a Jewish area where they've got the freedom to they be themselves. They are, in a sense, being, being well, in, a, in a space because they, all these arguments have gone about Eruv and putting up pieces of... But that's empowering them. That's giving them freedom to be able to live as they want to live. I'm not against it, but I, I just think it's... There was a time, and I'm old enough to remember this, there was a time when there was a wonderful middle way for Jews in this country. And you had, particularly the Sephardim, lived in areas of London which were not just full of Sephardim, but were filled with all sorts of different people. There were lots of Jews there, but there were lots of Catholics. There were quite a few Muslims, I suppose, a few Hindus. Sounding like Edgware. 
I think the description that you're giving actually does fit many of the areas that, that, that where Jews are living. I mean, they're living among neighbours. It may be their next door neighbour's Jewish, but there are plenty of neighbours who, who are Christian, Hindu, Sikh. Go down to the, the high streets, there might be a kosher shop, but there'll be plenty of others. There are many other people living in these areas. Maybe they're predominantly Jewish, but not so much anymore. People seem to like to come and live in Jewish areas, even if they're not Jewish. Do they? I think Edgware, as we spoke before, is a, a very good example. Edgware has so, so many synagogues, so many Jews, Poles, Muslims. You see, you just have to walk down the high street or in the shopping centre and you'll, you'll see any nationality. And not if you go to Stamford Hill, of course. No, well, I haven't been to Stamford Hill for a while. But you see, there are, there are an awful lot of people who will say, say, and they do say to me quite often, they will say that there may well be places parts of London in which there are lots of Jews living there and there are all the others, as you've all just been saying. But in actual fact, in Stamford Hill, they're all Haredim and they don't want anybody else there. And the Jews who are living in the other areas, they're intermarrying, they're taking up the religion anymore, they look upon Judaism as a culture. So in a way, these, what I'm calling ghettos, for want of a better word, but these places where there are lots of Jews living, they are social Jews, but they're not religious Jews, most of them. We've actually got a comment here on Facebook from Jonathan. It says, Kosher is ruined by political decrees that have not been lifted since the end of World War II. 2016 requires more openness and transparency. Therefore, if Jews are able to porge, I presume grow and flourish, in countries such as Argentina, then why is Great Britain 70 years behind? Ah, uh, that's interesting. Jeremy, you must have an answer to that because you have a wife who comes from that part of the world. Yes, she, she does. I mean, not from Argentina, but certainly from Brazil. And it is a very, very assimilated community in many ways. There's a great deal of intermarriage. But at the same time, you know, Brazil's Jews and, and Rio's Jews are very proud of the fact that they are celebrating their culture a great deal. Many speak Hebrew. All the major festivals are celebrated. There isn't necessarily any emphasis on kashrut. Most Jews there are not Orthodox, but there, there is a strong sense, certainly, of, of you know, sort of Jewish feeling, pride in, in Judaism. But at the same time, a great deal of intermarriage. So things are a little bit a bit complicated. So they don't live in what I've been calling ghettos, for want of a better word. Not that I know the areas very well, but I wouldn't describe them as ghettos. I think they. It's certainly true that there are significant communities in, for example, different parts of Rio de Janeiro in Sao Paulo, but it's not going to be nothing really like Stamford Hill or Golders Green. But is, is this not the same for most communities? You want to be able to buy your traditional food. You want your children to be going to a school with people of like mind. Isn't that quite a common no, because, thing to do? because that might apply to Muslims, but it certainly doesn't apply to most Christians. But it doesn't mean you're not integrating. If you live in an area with a lot of Jews, I don't want to use the word ghetto, but that doesn't mean you're not integrating. You know, you might not be going to a Jewish school, you might work with people who are not Jewish. It's just where you come home to an area that you feel comfortable Actually, in. Actually, if Golders Green is 80% Jewish, that means that people are probably moving around mainly into Jewish shops and Jewish work, and if it's, you're a Jewish dentist, you probably have a Jewish nurse, etc., etc., 
So why did Jews live in certain areas? I mean, somewhere like Boreham Wood. Why has Boreham Wood become a Jewish area? It's so popular now. Because they think it's, and they're right, Boreham Wood is a very attractive part of the world. And they're tired of living in Golders Green or wherever, and they move on to Boreham Wood. But it's also property prices. They gravitate well, to a certain surely pays, area. Boreham Wood is probably very expensive. Well, yeah, I think when they first started moving mm-hmm. there, it, it probably wasn't that expensive. I think property prices were cheaper than, say, Golders Green or Edgware. All right, so when you're a, a younger person like you and want to move on to a better place to mm-hmm. live, and now you think Boreham Wood is really rather boring, you'd like to move on to somewhere else, mm. what would you do? Well, to be honest, you're asking me this. I'm planning to go to Israel, so I'm going to go to a very big Jewish area. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's a different story. Stop that. <laughs> so if I'm answering honestly. But, I, yeah, no, I don't. No, I think I probably would prefer to be in a Jewish area. I would want to move out somewhere in the country where there weren't Where are Jewish you currently? People. I, I'm actually in Mill Hill at the moment. And Jeremy is too. In, indeed, yes. But not a ghetto. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have to be honest. I have to be honest. I can't make a comment about Mill Hill because I don't know Mill Hill very well. It doesn't feel as Jewish as I felt when I was living in Edgware. I no. think Liz is right, though. I think there's there's a real thing to be said about property prices and the fact that you look at the movement of Jews, especially in London, it's East End and... They wanted to move away from the East End once they became a bit more affluent. Yeah. Understandable. They moved in towards Stamford Hill, towards Golders Green. Property prices have gone up and up and up and up. The next generation can't afford the houses that their parents could afford. So they're moving further out. Hendon, Edgware. Hendon is getting more and more expensive. Edgware property mm. price going out. So they move on again to Borehamwood, to Shenley, to Elstree. And now there's talk of them moving further out into Letchworth and Welling Garden City. And I think it's purely because of property prices. There is a question to be said about our safety. And do we feel... Safety in numbers, you're saying. Are we vulnerable when we're not together? Is it safety in numbers, quite? In a sense. In a sense that there is, and in a sense there isn't. I live in Maida Vale, which used to be a very Jewish area, much less so now. But the synagogue there has to be protected. And the more Jewish an area is, the more the synagogue has to be looked after and protected because of things that could happen, uh, which is one of the sadnesses of, of the world today. I can understand that, but I think that there is there is the issue of throughout our history, you can you know, look across our history and we've been persecuted because we're assimilating too much and we're, you can't tell who's a Jew and it's a scary thing because you don't know what well, the actually, Jew Well, now like. you've hit a very important point because it is absolutely true that most younger people now are intermarrying, are forgetting to be Jewish and so there might be something to be said about having a, a very Jewish area because it keeps you being Jewish. And you feel safe to be Jewish. Mm. You feel that you're, you're safe. You don't have to hide it. It's very interesting you say that because we have a rabbi now in London who spent some time in America. Uh, he's an American. And he says that this country is much more anti-Semitic than, than America. But unfortunately, uh, we've, our time is up. So that's a very interesting argument, which we might have next time. So thank you all very much indeed. 
So my thanks to our guests, journalist and author Jeremy Havadi and community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn. And please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. This time it comes from... Rabbi Michael Evan David from Edgewim Assorti Synagogue. The parasha of this week and the next, Shlach Lecha and Korach, speak much about divisions inside our people. Sadly, this hatred and animosity is not only in the pages of the Torah, but in the newspapers as well. The sages asked in the Midrash, why was the Torah given in Sinai and not in the land of Israel? And they answered that was in order for no tribe to be able to say that the Torah was given in their land. So it was given in a neutral place. We all know the Kotel, the Western Wall. is a place of huge significance for all Jews in the world because of faith, history, and shared narrative. The Israeli government and the non-Orthodox movements achieved an agreement to establish a permanent area for non-Orthodox prayer in the Kotel, next to the current plaza. The government and Prime Minister Netanyahu have been unwilling to implement their own agreement so far because of the pressure from Haredi politicians. Two weeks ago, the situation got even worse, as an extreme group aided by police protection and led by Rabbi Shlomo Amar, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem and former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, both positions paid by taxpayer money, arrived at the Robinson's Arch area of the Kotel. This is an area which for more than 15 years has been specifically set aside for use by Masorti, Reform, and others who wish to pray in their own way. Amar's group set a mechitza to separate men and women and had a service. He called then non-Orthodox Jews evil people. All this in my eyes are the secretion of God's name. I think it's very important for us, Jews of the diaspora, Reform, Masorti, and yes, also Orthodox, to raise our voices and give an example of respect and love of fellow Jews. We don't have to agree. We don't have to pray together or even recognize each other's conversions. But we must respect and love each other. We must make clear to Prime Minister Netanyahu and his government that we expect all Jews from all denominations and beliefs to be welcomed and respected in Israel, in the land that our parsha describes justly as flowing with milk and honey. In these days of hatred and violence in the name of religion, we should make an example, at least inside the Jewish people, of our faith being a force for love and good and no more for more division. Thank you to Rabbi Michal Evan David from Edgware Mazzotti Synagogue with our Thought for the Week. And that's all the Jewish views that we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Shami Chakrabarty, Stephen Burstein, Dan Rickman and Charlie Agran, Jeremy Havardi and Liz Hirschkorn, who were on the schmooze. And of course, thank you to you at home for listening. Thanks also to the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always download the most recent editions of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk. And you can search for us in iTunes. 
The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.